GSCI helps logistics providers, banks and shippers to track air, ocean and road freight rates. Book a free demo at www.gsci.ti-insight.com. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of TI Talks Supply Chains. I'm your host, Kirsty Adams. In October last year, on the very first day of her new job, Georgia Maloney, Italy's Prime Minister, renamed her Economic Development Department as the Industry and Made in Italy Ministry. This new name, these carefully selected words, sent a really powerful message. Maloney says the Made in Italy brand is the most precious thing that Italy has. I'm sure Gucci, Ferrari and its customers would agree. Maybe you're one of them. This is episode one of our four-part Made In series. This series will explore Made In policies, especially in Italy and India. We'll also discuss the shift away from China in part three. Today's episode, part one, will be focusing on the language of supply chain diplomacy. These are big topics, and there's just one man who can cover them all. That's TI's founder and chief executive, author, advisor, director of Foundation for Future Supply Chain, and my boss, Professor John Manners-Bell. It's a very popular political device you can say, yes, we're going to be making more more goods in our country, which means uh, there's more employment uh, and everybody's happy. But of course, at the same time as that, you're forgetting sort of basic economic tenets that actually subsidy is, is not good in the long term. Before we dive in, here's the latest GSCI news. Hamburger Hafen and Logistic accepts bid by Mediterranean Shipping Company. MSC's bid to buy the German terminal company Hamburger Hafen and Logistic has been successful. The company's board issued a statement on the 6th of November that both had accepted the offer. The purchase is an important development in a port that has not always achieved its potential. It also strengthens MSC's container terminal business significantly. Retail downturn hurts UPS profits. UPS third quarter results saw a 12.8% fall in revenue year on year. Adjusted operating profit fell by 48.7%. The main cause of this sharp fall was a fall in daily volumes of express packages of 11.5%, with business to consumer volumes falling harder than business to business. However, UPS asserted that from the middle of August to September, Volume started to recover despite what the company called a challenging retail backdrop. On the positive side, revenue per package increased by 2%, with better mix of service types and robust rates supporting prices. Contract rates rally as spot rates continue to fall. The Apply, TI and IRU, European Road Freight Rates Index for Europe, shows spot rates index moved further below the contract rates index in Q3 2023. The spot index fell for the fourth consecutive quarter, while the contract spot index climbed for the first time since Q4 2022. 
Links to today's GSCI news stories can be found in the show notes. Okay, over to John. There's been a lot of talk over the last uh, well, last year really about uh, decoupling, deglobalization, and uh, a number of other terms which politicians are, are using to define the new relationships which countries in, in Europe and the US, North America have, particularly with China, but with other countries as well. And these have come about due to the sort of political pressures, I, I guess, not just China, but obviously with Russia and uh, many uh, countries in the Middle East uh, as well. So I, I think we're really now talking about a sort of a change in, in the trading paradigm and politicians are developing a new vocabulary to to talk about this and uh, so the vocabulary they use has become very important uh, related to, to the relationships that they have with these countries which they're trying to trade with so so take China for example obviously for for Europe and for North America but particularly for some countries in in Europe the relationship which they have with China is really fundamental to their own economic growth and uh, particularly to countries like Germany. Maybe we'll, we'll come back to that. So on one hand, they there are a, a huge amount of global pressures and security pressures, geopolitical uh, imperatives, which are, are driving the sort of political and trade narrative. On the other, they have the desire to continue good economic relations with these countries, with, with China. They don't want to fall out with China, but at the same time as that, they understand there are the world is changing. Uh, there are these political concerns, environmental and ethical concerns. And uh, so consequently, they really need to find a way of framing the discussion in which they don't, they try not to upset their Chinese partners, but at the same time as that, are able to convey the messages to other partners US, for example, or other lobby groups in the ethics uh, area or environmental uh, concerns that they are taking steps to uh, address many of the world's problems. And this is where we're seeing words such as de-risking come in or supply chain diversification uh, as opposed to deglobalization and uh, decoupling, which are, are very much words which are now off the agenda. Why is it so high risk for Germany, John? Well, uh, that's because the, over the last 20, 30 years, uh, not only have they offshored production to China, but they have actually invested hugely in the Chinese market. So if you look at the German automotive sector or the German chemical sector, they have the vast uh, factories in China to take advantage of the Chinese domestic market. And a large proportion of these companies' revenues are now derived from China. And that's not quite the same with other countries. If you look at the USA, for example, yes, uh, a lot of production has been offshored uh, to China, but these companies have, have not invested in factories and plants to the same extent. So they have the flexibility now, and this is what we're seeing, to uh, use suppliers in, based in other countries to uh, China plus strategies, as they're called, or optionalization strategies. Uh, and they're able to switch their supply much more easily. Germany is so heavily engaged with China and invested in the Chinese economy that that's not able to do this. And the German politicians recognize 
that, that they don't want to upset the Chinese market, uh, the Chinese government, because they have so much at stake. So which countries in Europe have a bit more flexibility? Well, in, in Europe, we'll, we'll see other countries like, like the UK and France uh, and Italy. It's really only Germany that has this huge investment in the, in the Chinese economy. And that's because of obviously the, the, the power and the strength of the German manufacturing industry and the fact that they have gambled big on the Chinese economy and being in the Chinese economy. And they, they're not in a position where they're going to be able to unravel that particular policy or, or manufacturing strategy decision uh, anytime soon. So there's a huge amount at stake for, for Germany. And this is why German politicians like Olaf Scholz have been driving the vocabulary and saying that decoupling, deglobalization is, is a really bad idea. Certainly, this is a very bad idea for the German economy. But of course, um, there are a whole range of other risks which are not being taken into account. Have you got any um, examples of other politicians, John, that are using this language that you've seen in recent weeks or months? Yes, very much uh, related to the environment as well. We're not just, it's not just a sort of geopolitical issue, it's also an environmental issue where we're seeing words such as <coughs> precautionism being used instead of protectionism. Uh, the, the European Union is uh, due to introduce the carbon border adjustment mechanism uh, in the next few months, and that's going to be phased in over the, over the coming years. And what that does is uh, place a levy on goods which are being manufactured elsewhere in the world to standards uh, which have well to lower environmental standards than that being undertaken in in Europe uh, which means that uh, the EU uh, is very worried that manufacturers will offshore to emerging markets production uh, where they can manufacture much more cheaply than they can in Europe and then import back into the EU at a lower price point which is disadvantaging uh, European manufacturers and to prevent this uh, the CBAM as it's called the carbon border adjustment mechanism uh, is going to add a levy back on to bring what the European politicians to see is, is a level playing field um, so to allow fair competition between the manufacturers which have stayed in Europe and manufacturing are to higher environmental standards than those in the rest of the world. However, manufacturers in the rest of the world, uh, for example in Mozambique where they make a, a, have a large amount of cement, see it very much as a, as a way of protecting the EU market because their, their own exporters will be disadvantaged by this and uh, it's, it will have a big impact on their economy. And to come back to the point about the vocabulary, we see that politicians prefer to use the word precautionism, which relates to the protection of societies and the environment, rather than protectionism, which again is off the agenda in terms of words, which relates to the protection of companies. And uh, protectionism has obviously huge overtones of going back to the 1930s uh, after the Great uh, Depression and uh, the, the way that countries imposed tariffs to protect their own, uh, their own businesses and their own uh, economies. Uh, and of course that resulted in a huge uh, uh, impact, a negative impact on the world's economy. So politicians don't like using the word protectionism, they've created this word precautionism, but to all intents and purposes it is the same thing. You're still placing a tariff or a levy, whatever you want to call it, on the import of goods into your country or into your trading block, 
which still protects those companies, even though politicians are saying it protects the environment or protects your societies, it's still protecting uh, companies at the same time. So depending on your perspective, whether you're in the emerging world or whether you're in Europe, then it's either a good thing, it's a fair device, it's a fair mechanism, or it's just a way of putting up barriers to fair trade. Obviously, we've heard politicians use this language. Are you hearing it more within the industry, within the supply chain sector? It's very much still a, a political issue at the moment. I think the obviously businesses are, are being driven as well by the commercial imperative to diversify their supply chains. And that's so I hear the words supply chain diversification or supply diversification, you know, China plus strategies, optionalization, rather than decoupling and uh, deglobalization. But uh, I, I think that the, the words used by politicians will f- filter down because now supply chains are being driven as much, if not more, by politics and uh, ideology than than economic uh, imperatives. And so consequently, it does have impacts uh, on on business. And the language we use definitely matters, doesn't it? Yes, it certainly does, because what politicians are trying to do, again, depending on your perspective, is trying to navigate these difficult waters between you know, keeping uh, governments uh, in emerging markets uh, happy, whether it's China or Saudi Arabia or Turkey or India, and also dealing with these difficult issues such as on the environmental side, the ethical side, and trying to de-risk the supply chains, which get from the time of COVID has become a more sort of a, a very much a, a political concern because people understand that by placing all your eggs in one basket, by, by really creating a dependency on a particular market such as China, then it has real implications to to your own societies and uh, and economies, as, as we saw in COVID when we weren't able to get PPE or whether we weren't able to source laptops and other electronic equipment from uh, from China or we weren't able to um, get to drugs for, from India. So it, it has real implications. And depending on your perspective, politicians are trying to navigate these difficult waters or they're trying to just obfuscate and uh, confuse the issue so no, so nobody really understands what's at stake. So just keeping the focus on the language, but um, drawing on what we're planning to talk about next episode. So next episode, we're talking about some made in Italy policies. So I just want to ask you, what language, are you, are you seeing language change when it comes to made in policies that are happening across the globe? Yeah. And, and again, I suppose this uh, relates back to this idea of protectionism. I mean, we can throw into that uh, subsidy and subvention. Again, these were terms which were certainly off the agenda throughout the 1980s 1990s into the 2000s when subsidy was seen as, as, as a bad thing especially within within the European Union now another way of putting subsidy is is made in policy whether that's made in Italy or made in made in America or made in India whatever and and so many countries are now putting these policies in place but again, it comes down to the fact that you are subsidising uh, local industry or national industry. It's a very popular political device. You can say, yes, we're, we're going to be making more more goods in our country, which means uh, there's more employment. 
and everybody's happy. But of course, at the same time as that, you're forgetting sort of basic economic tenets that actually subsidy is not good in the long term. You are destroying value rather than creating uh, value. And uh, but that that's being forgotten at the moment, and it has been before during COVID, but COVID was a real accelerator for, for this. And uh, and that's what we're seeing at the moment. Um, just a, a few uh, figures I have on that, which I, I saw recently, that um, in the EU, there was about 100 billion uh, euro subsidy, which was um, which had been approved by the EU in 2015. By 2021, that had gone up to 334 billion. And in the last 18 months, we've seen a subsidy being approved of 733 billion. And that's, again, that that goes against the grain for the EU, which was uh, supposed to be removing all these subsidies, uh, especially on a national basis, to allow free and fair competition throughout the whole of of the region. And that rule book has been torn up largely in the face of um, what's happening in in the US as well, some, t- some related also to um, the, uh, the sort of green technology revolution and trying to support the growth of the, the new technologies. But it, again, this is, is, is being seen as, as particularly unfair if, even throughout the region because it's big economies such as Germany and France, uh, particularly Germany again, uh, which I think uh, accounts for about half of that 733 billion euro uh, subsidy. You know, they have the resources that they, they're going to be able to support their own uh, economy, their own manufacturers. Whereas smaller countries in the EU just don't have those types of resources. So again, there is a, a lot of frustration, I think, within within the EU that this is being uh, allowed because it, it favours it favors the big economies. Is there anything else you'd like to add, John, around sort of the use of this new language that politicians are using? How does it, what do you think when you see them come up with a new term that you think is potentially damaging? Or It's very frustrating because, you know, you can see what they're, what they're, they're trying to do. And as I go back to what I said a little bit earlier, you know, you, you can see that they're in a difficult position. If, uh, if a large proportion of your economy is reliant on, on a country uh, which you don't want to upset, then obviously you you have to be careful on the language that you're using. But at the same time as as pretending to be in favour of free trade, in favour of uh, free markets, against subsidy, and at the same time as that, try and, uh, and pretend that you, you, you're keeping all these different countries and all these different pressure groups and lobbyists on, on board, then you can either be seen as being a clever political operator or you can be seen as being you know highly hypocritical and again it comes down to largely to, to perspective but um, you know you you are very much muddying waters obfuscating the, the real issues here and uh, in as in the way that, that that failed with through the relationship that the, the EU and particularly Germany had with Russia uh, over the years, then I see it, it failing in the same way with China. You know, so China is a very powerful and influential country. It wants to project its power. 
globally through uh, through economics and uh, and, and cultural and uh, through societal influences and i think it needs to be made clear that, that that's really what 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 china is doing and the risks which the eu and other parts of the the world face from that as well language really is important and it's understandable that nations don't want to upset their trading partners and as john says these are difficult waters it also feels like this language is a hiding place for old or unpopular trade policies. I really hope that today's episode was useful. I really enjoyed exploring this topic with John, as always. Next episode, we'll be looking in more depth at what Italy's made-in policy means for Italy, for EU, globally, and for you. Links to John's original logistics briefing on this topic can be found in the show notes. While you're there, please do sign up to our logistics briefing newsletter. It's really good. See you next time.